Hi, this is Charlie Goodchild and Andrew Goodall, and you're listening to the Health Space Podcast. This is the podcast where we dive deep into health-related questions and topical issues relevant to us all. The world of health and medicine is messy, full of contrasting opinions and misleading advice. We'll challenge the myths and common misconceptions by exploring the evidence, speaking to leading experts along the way. We are physiotherapists, have been friends since university and share the same belief that everyone deserves the opportunity to access high-quality, up-to-date health information. When it comes to health, we believe that better never ends. Thanks for listening. Let's get going. So welcome back to another episode of the Health Space Podcast. So we're in season two now. We're, we're talking about exercise. We've got Claire Minshall on today to talk about um, where exercise fit, especially within strength and conditioning and weightlifting. I first heard Claire speak actually on a Physio Matters podcast a few years ago, and I was really impressed. I thought it was such a great episode. And it's one of those where, you, where I instantly took away a real key bit of information that changed my practice actually and it's it's still something I do now uh, I won't spoil too much of it but it's it was certainly along the lines of basically loading people heavier being a bit more confident to really push people and, and raise the intensity of my rehab I always thought I wasn't really shy of it and, and actually I reflected and thought maybe I was for a few different patients and certainly something I've I've changed since so Claire is strength and conditioning coach as we've spoken about and she's also a researcher and lecturer and an educator and and I won't I'll, I'll let her tell her story about what led her towards these particular parts of her career but what really impresses me is her her, her educational side and, and something that she really enjoys to do is is educate health professionals actually about rehab and strength and conditioning principles within rehab um, she's also an ex-powerlifting champion and really yeah really has really picked up the the sort of rehab arm of what she does so at this point I'll, I'll invite Claire in just to maybe fill in the journey a little bit and tell us what really got you into focusing on the rehab element of strength and conditioning, Claire. Welcome to the show and I'll, I'll let you carry on from here. Oh, thanks so much, guys. It's uh, it's a real honour to be here, to be on, to be invited. Where to start? So where does strength and conditioning and lifting stuff, heavy stuff feature in my life and where's it come from? Um, so actually, I was a team sports athlete before before I really kind of got into that and it was a part of the training that that I thought might be necessary and as I increased my education through a level degree PhD I realized it, it played probably a, a more of a significant role than was maybe I guess generally understood so I an example I I played underwater hockey octopus it's a very I suppose, non, non-mainstream sport, but I played that for, for Great Britain. And a lot of the training was around, didn't make sense at all. You know, everybody was doing exactly the same thing, but yet you play different positions. So kind of integrating some of those things into what I did from an athlete perspective. But also I kind of enjoyed doing it as well. And I realized before I understood educationally the background to it, it gave me a bit of an edge. Well, yeah, that, that, that's basically where it kind of came from. It's something that I really enjoy doing. And I kind of fell into powerlifting at the end of, I guess, a competitive career. But yeah, my, my background is sports science and sports medicine. And I've always had a really keen interest into why injuries happen 
uh, what we can do to potentially ameliorate that risk and then better rehabilitate uh, if we can't prevent them what can we do to better uh, prevent people from sustaining injury again once we return to sport but also daily activities so you might not be a sports athlete but you might still want to do things that are challenging and you might be an older person who wants to walk on unstable ground with a dog and you, you kind of feel uh, unstable in your joints like why does that happen and what can we do in terms of the knowledge that we have to effectively train the systems to work better to enable you to do that I guess that's that's where I've, I've come from my passions I guess and how I've integrated that personally I don't know if that's what you are you are asking you know how it's great. Oh, yeah. Claire, can I ask, did you find your approach or, or the approach that you kind of found around this time where you integrated a bit more strength training and or resistance training particularly different to those as you moved through your sort of athlete journey? Did you find that you were still quite different or that you was maybe ahead of the time a little bit with some of this sort of training method? Retrospectively, yeah. So, so looking back, uh, yes. So and I guess I've never really spoken about this before, but um, so yeah, I played um, underwater hockey for my country. I played National League basketball, but I played in, particularly in basketball, in positions where you wouldn't necessarily expect somebody of my height to play. So I'm only five foot seven, uh, but yeah, I'd be certainly, possibly not a National League, but the leagues below playing in the centre. And that was a reason because I, was, I had that strength and I had the ability to jump high and I trained that ability. And in um, my other sporting careers as well, careers like I'm paid for it because clearly I wasn't even at national level, but pursuits, then I, that really gave me an edge. So in, in underwater hockey, for example, you, there's a lot of a, it's a sprinting game. And when you meet somebody, if you kind of impact them, if you're stronger, then you've got a greater uh, chance of some being able to, to kind of carry on with, um, I won't educate you or bore you, should I say, with, with, with that minority sport, but that does play a, give you a great advantage to be able to swim fast, be able to hold your own, and also the, the puck as well that you're pushing along the floor of the pool. So yeah, at those moments in time, I realized there was a, an advantage that I had. And then as my educational journey was going I kind of realized why it was and that the training that was perhaps being prescribed might have been better tailored and this is a long time ago <laughs> so I suppose rugby is, is probably the most obvious example of how they've made uh, real good use of you know changing their, their training practices for the benefit of the game and for performance reasons it's you know, the size of the players is just ginormous now you know I, I did used to play rugby at not a very good level and I always struggled to put on weight which may well have been one of the limiting factors for the performance for me but certainly even at the level I played there were just people that were massive and, and they, they make such an impact on the game so you know I think that's something that in the last or since the professionalism of the game I suppose that size Definitely. and strength has changed. I have to say as well, so when I start my PhD journey in um, around about 2000, a company sponsored me that was called Elite Sports Assessment, and we were aiming to try and prevent injuries. It's, it's far too ahead of its time, but 
what you saw at that moment in time, rugby taking on sports medicine and the principles of strength and conditioning and training specifically for, you know, like a back and a forward <laughs> shouldn't train the same. They've got different morphologies. They've got different capabilities. They've got different tasks. So why would you prescribe the same? They really took on sports medicine, sports science. And, you know, you could see the, the acceleration of, the, of them as a sport, but also when we were testing them in the lab, they're just, just phenomenal. Whereas, unfortunately, at the time, Premiership football was a little bit um, what we've done before. It's worked, so we'll keep doing the same thing. And, you know, a little bit of hesitancy about taking on sports medicine, sports science to try and influence, optimise some of the training, uh, rehabilitation. And so, yeah, I, I, just, just to say about the, the rugby, real, real difference when we saw them in the lab and from the individual players through to the accommodation and uh, uptake of perhaps uh, suggestions of, of different training techniques. I would say that that cultural difference still exists. I've worked in both sports and that culture definitely still exists. And there's, there's still a, a bit of a, uh, a, definitely a rugby, a push, push. Let's try and figure out all the little ed edges we can gain within sports science, sports medicine. And in football, it's a bit like, mm, not quite sure if we want to make that change yet. And that, that, that culture yeah. does still exist a little bit. Not everywhere, but certainly yeah, on average. Definitely. Totally agree with that. Yeah. So we've we've sort of said strength training, we've said resistance, we've said power, we've said a number of different terms that people might use interchangeably. Where lies the difference? Is it possible to sort of clarify perhaps some of the differences between what we mean by strength and, and power and, and, and just maybe resistance training, for instance? Sure. So you, you, you're quite right. I don't think many people really understand what true strength is. And that's fine because, you know, like you're saying, there's, there's many terms that's, that's thrown around in, in sport, but also in the media and in commentary. Like, you know, if you're watching a 400 meter run and they've got real strength endurance and it's, it really confuses matters. But if you, if you boil it down to what the, the underpinning physiology is, then it is really quite clear. So the first thing is we, we add resistance. So resistance is lifting something or picking something up or moving something that presents a challenge. Now it's the extent of that challenge which then determines how the musculature adapts. So whether or not you're trying to achieve an improved strength, you're trying to achieve an improved muscular endurance, or you're trying to achieve uh, a muscular power adaptation or indeed size hypertrophy or cross-sectional area and each one of those parameters or goals requires a slightly different approach because just because we pick something up or push something or lift something it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to achieve all of those things optimally and that's once you start to engage in that resistance training where it becomes interesting and you can start to really exploit those parameters whether you be an athlete or whether you be uh, a non-athlete and an everyday kind of person who wants to get back after the you know plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendinopathy or, or something to get back to the normal daily activities that's where you really follow, find the gold and you can exploit those parameters to their best effect so um, strength or maximal strength is is basically defined as the maximal force you can elicit on a single contraction 
So how much can you lift on a one rep max? Or if you're being tested on a dynamometer, what's the, the actual force output? Power is more about speed of force application or production, should I say. Hypertrophy is a, you know, the cross-sectional area. How big are the mus muscles? So if that's more of a bodybuilding application. And then muscular endurance is how long can you keep going producing a, a reasonably high level of contraction force or indeed low level so you can have high intensity endurance and low intensity endurance so you might be looking at a pick a running example maybe a, a 400 meter run versus a marathon so i guess it depends what your end goal is really doesn't it and and or to some extent it doesn't really matter as the user as the you know as long as you're being sort of coached towards it or you, you're sort of being shown what to do or at least being pointed in the right direction but it really depends on what you're trying to achieve as to what you might target in your training. Absolutely. So yeah. And, and, and I don't think any of those things should present a barrier to anybody to, to give it a go. So don't be you know, worried or uh, overwhelmed or uh, confronted by all of these things. If you're, if you're new to it, just start. That's the first thing. And then if you want to really try and improve a particular element of those things i've just mentioned then you've got the ability to change the prescription what advice would you give to someone then who's on the fence a little bit or is looking to start what advice would you give to someone who has heard a bit about lifting weights um, thinks they're going to give it a go what should what should their first option be perhaps well at first ask them why so so why do you want to do it why are you bothered what's made you think about this and and that might then evoke you know, several reasons. Maybe they feel a little bit self-conscious about the body. They want to look a bit, bit stronger, a bit bigger. Maybe they've heard that strength might be important for long-term being, being active long-term. I think both of those things represent potentially the different ends of a continuum. Maybe you're uh, uh, some sort of athletes or you perform recreational sports and think it's important for some reason so that the real kind of question is why you think you might want to do it obviously i'm going to encourage it anyway <laughs> it's, it's it's such a uh, an important thing to adopt and maintain as a habitual activity particularly through later uh, life as we encounter the age-related uh, consequences to, to loss in muscle tissue, including uh, muscle, and which has consequences to, to things like being independent and being healthy and maybe even length of life as well. But the first thing would be like, why do you want to do it? And then you can start to shape the intervention around or the, the prescription and training around that particular goal. You've sort of semi-answered this, but should everyone be lifting weights then we sort of said there's 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 benefits for it a few benefits which we'll i think we'll we'll dive into potentially after this but it sounds like this could be good for most is that fair uh, yeah yeah i think for me it becomes more important as we get older because the as we said before the, the age-related losses in, in muscle or any tissue quality occur and we, we can't really help that it's a normal process of aging However, if we think about muscle tissue, and I'm sure many of your listeners are, are familiar with the, the term sarcopenia, so that's the age-related loss in muscle. Now that can be, depending on the definition that you uh, adopt, can be muscle volume, so the size, it can be muscle quality, so the, the 
component parts, if you like, of the muscle and the fibers. It can be muscle strength. And, and all of these things are you know, important for us carrying out our daily activities independently. And as we, you know, one think it's important as we sit here now, but after the age of about, depending on what source you, you read and in which literature you, you, you read, you, from the age of about 50 or 40, you start to lose muscle tissue um, or muscle quality or muscle size. Um, between one to five percent or some reviews might say between 40 to 80 years old you might lose between 30 to 50 percent of muscle and that can be quite you know shocking to hear but the really great thing about the human body is you provide it a stimulus and it will adapt the same thing about bone as well you know if we sit still in a chair there's no need for the bone to keep remodeling and be be strong so it detrains likewise for the musculature but as we start to lower the structures then it prevent uh, presents a, a stimulus so then we need to start to adapt and, and rebuild so in terms of the musculature you start to resistance train lift things that are challenging then the innovation to the musculature or the supply from the nerves kind of keeps going or doesn't de-innovate as much the size of the musculature may change a little bit. So it's really, really important that we start to do this as we get older, because as we get older, things start to decline and it becomes more and more important. And there's a, a massive body of, of, of evidence that shows that muscle strength in particular, rather than muscle size, is related to quality of life. It's predictive of becoming uh, dependent on others for doing things around the house and also quantity of life as well. So all cause mortality. Um, so strength is, is so important, or should we say avoiding becoming really, really weak is really important. So, you know, I'd advocate for every person as they get older to invest in some weights to put into the house or make sure you've got a gym membership um, so that you've got the opportunity to do that because as a population, we're living ever more sedentary lives. One of the things I'm saying to patients of mine on a daily basis, probably several times a day, is use it or lose it, which is essentially a, an overarching summary of pretty much what you've what you've said. Uh, and then the other thing I'll often say is load it to grow it. You know, if you, if you want to regain it, you got to you got to start loading it again. Um, I can see Andy smiling away there at the, the cheesy lines, but they they do work. They do work. Um, <laughs> And so many patients will come back in actually and then say the back to me because they've it's, it's stuck. You know, it's one of those sticky terms that they'll, they'll remember. And one, I wonder whether, because you mentioned about the changes happening around 40 to 50, but what, what I bet they're happening sooner. We're just not seeing them as obviously, because if you look at the world of sport, how often do athletes start to decline in their, in their 30s? And, and that's something that the power output just isn't quite there or the speed isn't quite there, but it's probably on such a small level that it only matters in elite sport. Probably doesn't matter so much for, for us, you know, as we're playing a bit of five side football or, you know, but it's much, but it probably is, is that, what do you think about that? Is that happening just slightly earlier? We just, it's not on a significant level yet. There's a couple of things there. So, so one, are you testing it? Uh, and two, what level are you testing it at? So most of us, probably don't go to the extremes or the absolute capacity very often um, and very frequently. So therefore, we 
one, don't have a measure of that, and two, probably don't train that hard. And then the other thing is that maybe the, maybe maybe it's true, maybe the, the innovation is declining. So when you think about the uh, age-related decline in muscle volume, mass quality, whatever it is, it's a preferential loss to the fast twitch capabilities, which do provide the strength, but also the power as well. So, you know, if, if you're elite athletes, you are pushing yourself, your body to the extremes and trying to get the most out of your body most of the time. Now, if you look at recreational athletes or people that don't participate at all in any sport but just want to be active normally we don't know what that boundary you know that that ceiling is so we've never got the ability to to measure what we've lost in terms of an absolute capacity so and then in elite sport we've got this uh, performance metric ongoing that we can see and we can measure and we can record to see to you know any any decline um, so it might be that we have changes a little bit earlier than 40, but like you're saying, the, the subtle changes might not register on a mass population basis because we're, we're big, measuring big populations. But yeah, so, you know, whether, whether or not that's, the, yeah, whether that's important or not on a population basis, possibly, possibly not, but in a sporting population... <laughs> You're looking at try if you need to maintain that fast twitch capability, that power, that um, ability to accelerate, decelerate quickly, and, and you know jump, etc., higher than the next person. Then you would assume that they've got the would assume they've got the capability in there to to train that optimally, and then it's a milieu of other things like genetics and carryover effects of different you know performance and training into the next day and the next week etc so yeah it's it, you know to, to answer the question whether or not we have those losses earlier we need really accurate sensitive measures and um, to be able to push people to their maximum to be able to record what the maximum is as they start to decline and, and on a population basis, it's really, you know, if we're going to get into power and rate of force development, it's really difficult to, to measure that accurately. I just did a, a podcast on that uh, measuring RFD. Um, it, it's, it's quite difficult to, to, to do, even in the most experienced of, of people as well. So yeah. Interesting point though. If we're talking sort of, we sort of version on like population stuff. So the World Health Organization uh, guidelines suggest two sessions of 30 minutes. My first bit was thinking, listening to you, like, is that enough? Uh, and where's that sort of come from? So is it enough for what? Yeah, <laughs> then, then where do we go with that? So when you're looking at population data, um, and when if we look at the, the, the WHO data, the World Health Organization, we're really thinking about population health and for that, we need to think about the like big data and systematic reviews, meta-analyses, and more than one of them. And you know, the, if you look at where that's come from, there's 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 a greater body of research into aerobic activity than there is in strength training. And then when you look at the 
strength or resistance training is it you know i published a, a systematic review myself on on strength training in sorry resistance training in the osteoarthritis about three four years ago and within the the research itself we can't really say it's strength training even though they've said strength in the methodologies because it's not been designed adequately enough to elicit strength gains you know and, and there's such a heterogeneity between intervention so you might have somebody doing an isokinetic protocol pushing as, as hard as they can again in, in a dynamometer versus another population which is doing um, straight leg raises and there's no differentiation between the two on intensity and rep max and etc so the ability to then explore and determine and define a dose response is really well impossible and then you've got a multitude of health concerns that you might want to apply it to so again it becomes even more difficult but we do know that maintaining or a lack or should we look retrospectively you know muscular weakness is associated with a multitude of, of poor health outcomes also prospectively it means that you know you're going to be more dependent on individual other individuals to carry out your um, normal daily activities as we said before and also there's a greater risk of all-cause mortality so muscular strength is important it's just how much is enough and what does that 30 minutes comprise of and whether the intensity needs to be x or y and what the uh you know rest and all these the parameters it's impossible to determine right now because we haven't got the volume of quality research there we know it's important absolutely know it's important so i guess two minutes of 30 minutes sorry two sessions of 30 minutes might be important in kind of reducing hypertension, improving bone mineral density. But the, you know, these recommendations were kind of probably made around about 2000 and I think it's about 2011, maybe a bit, bit later than that. So, you know, there's a lot more research that we can probably add into those as, the, as they're updated. Let's break, bring this down to a more individual level then. So if someone's coming at this podcast with individual questions such as, I would like to get stronger, how do I do that? Or I would like to grow muscle, how do I do that? What would be the, the general advice for, for that person with those two questions in mind? Okay, so think about where you are in your resistance training journey. Have you never done it before? Or is it something that you've always kind of played around with, but you've never really had a prescription? So if you've never done it before, just start to do it and start you know low easy progressive don't overdo it enjoy it um, and because it's something novel you will make adaptations across a multitude of parameters so you're putting something novel into the system in terms of a stimulus you will adapt in terms of probably improved strength and power and you get all sorts of improvements which is fantastic but after a few weeks then then you've got the opportunity to, I suppose, hone your prescription a little bit more or hone your training a little bit more into what is it that you really want to improve. So you've established a habit, you've found a gym you like to go to, or you've got your own, you're feeling good, you've, you've, you've not you've got proper techniques, all these kind of things. 
then is it that you actually want to kind of get buff for the beach <laughs> in which case you know you're looking at volume or is it that you want to get stronger such that you can maybe ameliorate injury risk or indeed if you're older uh, populations you want to be able to you know maybe reduce knee pain then that's uh, with the stronger stuff you need to be lifting heavier weights for fewer repetitions and really that might go to something that you can only lift five times but not six with proper form and obviously controlled in a safe way and that often sounds quite um, you know when you really think about that it sounds quite horrific really you know that's five times I'm picking something I can only lift five times and then there's assumption sometimes that that means you're going to turn into this massive hulk maybe your skin turns green I don't know you know uh, there's this this horrific you know for some popular people thinks that, that that that's that's what's going to happen but actually no it's the other thing that makes you big doing lots and lots and lots of volume versus the higher intensity stuff actually makes you stronger. You have a little bit of change in morphology. You probably like that because it means that things probably tighten up a little bit, but the, the size change will be less by comparison to if you really want to grow. And guess what, it's reversible. So you can, you can stop doing it if you don't like the effects, but um, you know, really honing your training to improve muscle strength will have a different outcome than if you really want to hone your training to improve muscle size and look like bodybuilders ogden regis beach is not going to know what's hit it after this advice is it people are going to be walking down green <laughs> skin <laughs> <laughs> yeah so lifting weights is still taboo among quite a lot of different groups um, but have you noticed it change in recent years yeah it's starting to so i do a lot of teaching with with as you know healthcare professionals and physios and rehab uh, professionals and so probably about four years ago it was a little bit you know people are hesitant to do you know prescribe higher loads there was an assumption that maybe people are going to start to get big it was dangerous particularly in, in inverted commas frailer populations particularly like older people or those with osteoporosis and thankfully now because we're starting to get some more evidence also, it's becoming more of a, a topic for popular conversation. Um, it's people are looking at it with a slightly different light, I feel. So whilst it might be a fashion and a fad and, you know, you kind of get big biceps or a big house or whatever you want to do, it means that, you know, we're talking about lifting weights more, which, which is a good thing because it means that it's opening people's minds to this topic of conversation and therefore we're considering more the scientific evidence and the ability to kind of implement that more in you know in this case in rehabilitation but also in longevity and quality of life so yeah i think i think certainly in the uk it's changing changing a little bit you know slowly but surely listen to you it made me for some reason think of instagram and this might be one of a few, but one of the smaller benefits that's come out of it, even though there's a lot of rubbish, which we probably all agree, there is a lot more, or it seems like there's a lot more lifting, a lot more resistance training, a lot more kind of certainly females as well, happier to demonstrate themselves being in a gym, 
being happier in a sort of frame that has muscle tissue as well that seems to be a bit more popular which is probably a positive to come out of that although you know i'm sure there's plenty negatives that come out of some of the movements and exercise and the way they apply them but in general is a positive yeah yeah i agree absolutely so yeah the, there might be different motivations to to try and achieve certain aesthetics and with anything that, that occurs or you any trends you you'll get both ends of the continuum whether they be kind of done to good effect or, or not so good but um i think broadly speaking that this is brought to a um popular conversation is 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 amazing because you know i personally am, am super passionate about the management of osteoarthritis and how much more and um, how much more we can do for people uh, with some very very simple changes to exercise prescription such that maybe we can ameliorate the need for early total knee hip replacements we can ameliorate certainly some of the programs i've run the reduction in knee pain from you know maybe a 10 out of 10 to a like a two out of 10 and not taking analgesia through to that you know by prescribing forgive me not prescribing by those people being passionate about being able to lift weights and it empowers them as well and that's what really excites me because those things are super important for me on a on a, a population level to help people live better quality lives for longer and we just need to enable that and if that means that people you know kind of young girls are talking about it in a, a way that maybe aesthetically i might not want to look like you know as long as they're healthy fit for me it just adds to that the volume if you like of the conversation which which is a good thing yeah i love i love where you were going with with your your, your passion project with the, the the talk about osteoarthritis and it's it's a, it's that difference between health span and lifespan isn't it you know you know are you are you just trying to live longer or are you just are you trying to live healthier for longer and it's such a a key difference there and actually this is re, re going over something i mentioned when i introduced you at the start of the podcast certainly the way that has changed my practice uh, in the the older person and certainly in someone who's got this uh, osteoarthritis disability for example but can you give us an idea of what a program might look like for that kind of person i know we wouldn't necessarily be saying everyone should do the same but just a rough idea of what the type of program would look like for someone with disability perhaps osteoarthritic disability and pain sure yeah definitely <clears throat> so um I, when we're out of COVID, <laughs> I run a 12-week uh, knee OA um, program, of which actually we've run it online in, in collaboration with with uh, physios online with uh, with Evie Martin actually over COVID, which has gone fantastically well. But the principle of it is is taking people to that overload of getting them to do that five rep max, three to five rep max, getting them into a strength zone. So as close as of that or to that as we can get so it's not doing something 15 times and then stopping because you've you've got bored it's it's applying those principles of overload and specificity and what that means if you're not interested in those principles it means working hard but for a very short period of time and what that means in terms of a muscle level is that your muscles are going to be a little bit shocked 
and they're going to adapt and they're going to get stronger. So next time when you do it, maybe in a couple of weeks, actually, no, I can handle that. Now, what you do then is instead of staying at that level, you challenge them a bit more, you challenge them a bit more, and you challenge them a bit more such that they adapt. Because what's happening as we get older, from 50, 40, whatever years plus, is that our tissue, as we sit and do nothing to challenge the system, it starts to decline. And we need to reverse that decline if we don't want to be reliant on medication and others to live a, a good quality life in you know in the future so in terms of the basic program of what we prescribe within the gym setting and it's in a gym and people are made to feel welcome and they come in and it might be the most challenging thing that somebody can do in their life because they've maybe never been to a gym before and they might be 65 years old and they've got really bad knee pain but yet they want to go walking uh, with their dog and their wife but they can't manage you know kind of 20 minutes right now the basic core program is kind of doing leg extensions on the extensions hamstring curls and leg press and we take them up to that five rep max as soon as we can get there and that's individualized based on their confidence their capabilities and and I want to say symptoms, but symptoms doesn't play a major role because what we do is we adapt the exercise. And this is what I teach in my courses all the time. Don't lose a specificity, change the exercise such that you can maintain specificity. So specificity is specifically what you want to work on. Is it power? Is it strength? Is it hypertrophy? And if it is, for example, strength, you want to work heavy loads but very few repetitions, that patient is symptom symptomatic because they're, they're, it elicits a pain. Doesn't mean you ditch that exercise. It doesn't mean you reduce the load. It means that you think creatively about adapting the exercise such that you can maintain that load. You can maintain that overload into the musculature so they adapt. And lo and behold, what we find more often than not is that they get stronger and then they're able to do the exercise in a way that we might you know consider normal inverted commas for somebody who's asymptomatic so it's the basic problem consists of those three exercises taken to that level when we can get there and then with a minimal dose uh, delivered per week and then some ancillary exercises like you balance proprioceptive work etc really great to hear because it doesn't have to be complicated does it and the principles are essentially the same for you know rehab across the board is progressive overload at an intensity that's going to drive adaptation um, and if it's painful adapt it <laughs> and really that that's that could transfer across all rehab and and across all strength training in some way or another it is and something that i'm so passionate about is integrating and translating what we've known in in sports performance literature for decades maybe sometimes hundreds of years into rehabilitation where it can have a profound effect so yeah I used to work with elite athletes but you know what really excites me is making a difference or having the opportunity to make a small contribution to somebody's life being better and if I can do that with translation of some of these principles which includes the most basic of them all specificity overload and progression in your rehab exercises as i said which i teach all the time in my courses that's the that's a, the basic building blocks you get those three things right 
then you're flying, your patient's flying, and then you can layer on all the other adjuncts like, I don't know, BFR, cross-education, non-concurrent stuff on top of that, and you can make those minimal gains. But those things will make, I don't know, 80% plus of the changes you want to elicit in, in, a, in a training or in a rehabilitation environment. It's interesting because when I became a physio, um, certainly when I moved into MSK, I'd done, we both, well, me and Charlie had both done sports science the week before. And I, and I remember moving into the MSK department at the time uh, and just thinking, this is madness. Why are we giving out yellow ferrobands to help someone strengthen whatever it might be that they were trying to strengthen? Because it just, I don't know, I guess having seen a slightly well, or, or dived into more of the, the sports medicine sort of research in, in, in one degree and then taking it into somewhere where I thought we was kind of at the elite end of getting people better. Obvious principles like overload don't seem to necessarily be be utilised very effectively or, or specificity, like you say. So uh, I think there's there's still a long there's There still feels like there's a long way to go, but it's great to see people like yourself and, and others are, are trying to disseminate that much yeah, more. Yeah, and I get it. I get it as well, because you're in the hardest position you're in the hardest job because you're not working with people that are healthy fit and athletic you're working with people that are, are worried that are concerned that have got pain and, and, and clinical considerations so you layer on like a million other like <laughs> it's like a shit they said that you gotta layer on you're like oh my god how how can i how can i do optimally all these things when i've got all of this to deal with so i completely get it and ultimately you want to do no harm so I've got a real understanding and empathy and sympathy with people in these positions because you, you're amazing, right? So what you do, you make people better. Now, you could, if there's, there's a chance to just kind of think slightly differently and, and not worry so much about one single thing or that, you know, if you can change an exercise so it doesn't elicit a pain response, if that enables you to kind of introduce that overload a little bit more then like that's like well for me that makes me feel good in that if it improves your your clinical outcomes which we've seen in the studies that we've done it potentially can do then that's that's the exciting bit so it, I think it's translating that and it always takes a long while to translate evidence into education it does because you need a, a massive evidence and then I've worked in academia for, for, for many, many years and, and making a, a de, even ch changing a degree takes, it takes a lot. You know, I've got an understanding, I've got an empathy for it. So I'm not bashing anybody. If I can help in those ways, then that makes me feel good. And also I would agree that I think we can probably go a few steps further with those basic principles and considering them, considering them a little bit earlier on to present a different paradigm perhaps in the way that we deliver exercise. I think the other important part to, to mention is that we're much more confident now and the research backs it, up, that backs it up that we don't always have to be pain-free to exercise safely. Um, there's many conditions now where we know that's really, really important that being pain-free is not necessarily the best thing for rehab and you, quite often you don't get enough out of it and we end up chronically underloading people and probably end up doing them harm by underloading them. So there is an important element of, you know, knowing that individual, but um, being a bit more confident as a clinician, perhaps, you know, we're moving on to clinical stuff here, but being, being confident to load that person because you know it's best for them and you know that it's safe because that safe level of pain has been 
discussed and, and agreed in, in advance. Let's let's move back on to sort of a general population conversation as well. And is there anything that we can do to engage more people in um, some form of resistance training? So thinking maybe around GPs or how, how else could we promote this? I mean, we've got exercise on prescription in certain areas of the UK. I mean, yes, I think, you know, we, we could have this through a GP referral or suggestion but i think that requires a lot of education as well at that that level and understanding and there are very you know there's a lot of, of gps and um uh, sports medics or even medics that aren't sport medics actually that that have a understanding that the importance of exercise and physical activity in general health but the understanding of what resistance exercise is and how that differs from walking or going up the stairs probably takes a little bit more. So the challenge to do that would be you know, quite, quite a big challenge. <clears throat> but that said, I think there's pockets of places within the country, I know of a, of a few in the, in the UK that have got programs that maybe integrate this better than others, which involve we've tried to set up before referrals out into gym environments rather than into hospital environments that have got resistance equipment that maybe upskill like we've done before personal trainers um, who have got that already that knowledge and understanding that resistance is good um, but yet maybe a little bit of knowledge about how what the clinical conditions might be they're coming in and you've got maybe a bit of oversight from the clinician as well that that means that you've got this nice integration and kind of working together or interdisciplinary approach to delivering a exercise intervention that incorporates resistance as well. So I think to, you know, one that is happening on a population level often drives change from, from below, if you like, grassroots up. So maybe that's going to start to happen. There's already a movement as well looking at exercise as medicine. So maybe we're going to get some more evidence base as well in terms of resistance exercise to how that impacts population health that will maybe shape some of those uh, recommendations and or educational programs as well but it's driving those and affecting those affecting those levels of change on a population basis is, is really challenging and then also you you need to kind of pin it or hang it on something so what's it for is it for if it's sport performance it's not the bag of pop, you know population health. If, is is it healthy living? Well, what's what's healthy living? Is it reducing knee pain in osteoarthritic populations? You know what what's it for? It's a bit more complicated. We start to dive into what, why isn't it happening? See this a bit with um. So we both work in private healthcare, uh, and we both work in an MDT where there is an S and C coach. So we're very lucky. Uh, but but insurers won't don't cover s and c uh, and and most of the time the sort of discussion with that is that they see that as being the progression to sport or or the, like the performance aspect of health rather than necessarily being a an aspect of getting that person back to their activities of daily living or the activities that are going to keep them doing their job for instance which might be why they have their um, health insurance uh, that's i find that quite challenging because I, I do still feel there's there's a part of uh, improvement in rehab where 
the SNC coaches are still better than the most people that apply in some of the principles that we've already discussed. And actually we can incorporate it much easier, much earlier and improve someone's rehabilitation rather than just performance. So I hope that will continue to change, but I, I think like you were just covering, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you have to sort of justify the why they need that aspect. And I think that's the, the difficult part of general population. Yeah. And there's an understanding that, or a general understanding of what, what strength and condition represents, like you said. So it means strength and conditioning is for athletes, right? So we don't need that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, and then maybe there's a, a hierarchical approach. Not that I'm saying this is valid or, or relevant, but you know, you, you've got your chartered professions of physiotherapy and then you've got the uncharted profession of strength and conditioning. So therefore, you know, from a funding perspective, that's outside our realm as well. So there may be different models in different countries, but to integrate those principles is, is super important. And I think there's, whether we'll get there or not, I don't know. I've, I've spoken at length with many public and private healthcare um, institutions and influencers and stakeholders and funders about this model whereby we've got a need to integrate the, the two professions or the, at least the, the clinical and you know kind of driving that collaboration between health and fitness if you want to broad it like you know kind of term it like that and then the clinical and we'll have a crossover a natural crossover somewhere in the middle and then an expertise here and an expertise on the other side and and that for me will you know, if we can get there, then that will be utopic, won't it? Because, you know, the patient will get the, the best journey is integrated and we're not going from pillar to post. But also, you know, if you're doing better rehab, arguably you'll have fewer returns back into that, that, that clinical system for the same problem. And you as, as, as physios can kind of pass over once you've done your, your really important clinical stuff started them on that exercise journey given the right advice you can hand over to somebody that you know that's confident capable of, of taking them further and that you know that's that's the ideal but it requires a lot of, of forward thinking by by many and that's often delivered uh, sorry um determined by money um you know you can you can't sell prevention it's impossible <laughs> so, yeah. oh it's nearly impossible so if you can hang it on something that's not prevention, <laughs> then you've got a better chance of achieving funding for it. Yeah, you, you raise a good point. I mean, I, I would absolutely love for more to be spent on exercise interventions, you know, from a, a national level, a policy level. I think it would be such a great, great thing for so many people. But like you say, it's quite unlikely at the moment because people don't really understand prevention. It's, it's too short-termist really, isn't it? rather than thinking of, of the future. And, and actually, you can kind of see why, because the government probably only think in four or five-year cycles, don't they? So you know, what, why would they really think about 20, 30 years down the line anyway? You know, thinking of glo uh, population health again, you know, we can't uh, get out of the fact that we're still in a very, very much COVID era at the moment. Lots of people are going to be changing the way they exercise. And many people who did used to use the gym are now no longer using a gym or have perhaps have only just started getting back into gym routines. What advice have you got for people who are re-engaging with a gym? And some might have already done that, but some holding back a bit. So what advice would you give for them? So if you've already re-engaged with a gym, that's, yeah, 
great, fantastic, and just big. You know, some some people will just have been dying to do it. You know, like myself. Those people that haven't been dying to do it might it might have been a bit of an uphill struggle. So that's a massive kind of congratulations. Although that sounds really um, patronizing. So who am I to say that? But you know that it this is it's so multifactorial this has been and still continues to be such a tremendously challenging time and it's where exercise comes on that checklist of priorities for people that means or determines where it is if it drops off the bottom if you see what i mean so for me and for you guys it's high up the top you know you get it in you make sure it happens and it's very rare that it doesn't Whereas, you know, for, for other people that might not enjoy it so much or they've not find the thing that they really like or they're used to going to classes and classes can't happen and, and they, they love that social interaction with people. That's a part of it. It's meant that actually exercise on my own. It's not so much fun. I don't do it anymore. And it, it makes it really, really difficult thing to, to address as a, something that, that's singular. So... And that each and every individual is, is different. What motivates them, what barriers they have and, and what they want out of life. And so, I, you know, it's difficult to say, <laughs> what would I say to people? Because it depends who you are and where you're coming from. So exercise is so important. And I think everybody, most people probably understand that is just how do you fit it into your day in these horrific circumstances and what do you like doing and then trying to find that and just do that so just get moving and then go from there maybe i don't know everybody's different yeah and actually a friend of yours serena simmons who i know um came on to to the show in one of our earlier episodes she also spoke really nicely about sometimes just giving yourself a break you know everyone's going through a really right. tough time and every now and again you do just need to give yourself a break and don't give yourself such a hard time if you're really struggling with getting back into the gym maybe it is starting small and gradually building back up so i think uh, yeah. you're right it, de- it depends it really does it really does you know so don't don't berate yourself there's enough going on in the world right now to to make you feel bad so you know just Find something that if, if exercise is not something that's at the top of your priority list, that's something you find drops off a lot of the time, but you realize it's something that you really want to do, but you're not quite sure what to do. Find something that you don't feel pressured to have to do, that there's I don't know, maybe metrics that you need to meet and things that you need, times that you need to achieve. It might just be getting out in nature going for a walk and maybe you find a nice countryside hilly walk or something like that take the dog or a friend or just start that process and make it something that you look forward to rather than something that you dread and that's going to be that's the same pre and post uh pandemic times if it's something that you know somebody asked me I've been asked many times, what's the best exercise you can ever do? The exercise that you can, <laughs> the best exercise you can ever do is the one that you actually got to do. So if I, you know, if, is rowing better than cycling? Well, do you like rowing? No, I, I hate it. Well, don't buy a rowing machine because you'll just sit there. 
So find something that that's, that's means that you're moving your body and then that is a big tick. Feel nice about yourself and you can choose where okay, where to go from there. I think I feel like we could like close there. That's that's amazing. <laughs> that's you know, get yourself moving, get yourself moving, give yourself a break, get started, and then just feel your way in and 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 you know, just go from there really. And I think everybody feels a little bit like that anyway. I certainly did when I was allowed to go back to the gym. I was just like, okay, right, well, I've been in this space for a while. What do I do here mm. again? Uh, and you're just kind of like feeling your way around and, and and sort of getting back into it, right? So whether you haven't started or whether you're new to it. Um, or whether you're sort of jump starting something that you did before, just just kind of going slow, giving yourself a bit of time, adapting to it as you go, and enjoying it. I think is the the point I've heard you say lots of times throughout this is is, is essential. Absolutely, it so is. You know, if you enjoy it, you feel good mentally, as well as you know doing something good for your body physically. If it's something you don't enjoy, it's a, a stress, and you're going to likely drop it. Uh, you know, get your body moving. And then you can, you know, you've got positives you can keep on building on rather than something that's just going to, uh, like a New Year's resolution. I resolve to do this next year, which I've never done ever in my life, but I'm going to make this resolution every single year. You know, make it realistic, make it something that you you enjoy, and and it's not pressured so much pressure on it. You know, and that's you're, you're really struggling. <laughs> Like, oh yeah, like she said, don't beat yourself up about it. Just find something enjoying and and try from there. So Claire, let's let's uh, finish off then talking about in, enjoyment. What what do you enjoy outside? You you've made it pretty clear that gym is a big part of your life. But beyond that, what what do you like to do to enjoy? Are there books? Are there podcasts? Are there is it music? What do you what do you like to do to unwind? <clears throat> I find it really honestly. I find it really difficult to unwind. <laughs> So what I like to do, I think I unwind a lot kind of training. So that's probably why I do a lot of it. It's like a permission to switch off. So I like, I've just moved out into the countryside. I'm out on my bike a lot more, running a bit more gym now we can. In terms of podcasts, I think, you know, if you're going to recommend one particular one, um, I think the BGSM project, uh, podcast, British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast is really good. Um, because it gives you such a, a variety of applications and expertise on, um, on on sports medicine and how it applies to health as well. Also, every other podcast that that I've done, like a physio explained the health <laughs> health space podcast, is probably the best one I've ever heard of. Um, <laughs> uh, nice. um, no, it's it's true it's true but no it's like what else do i do you know like i like to read a little bit as well um although all my books are in boxes <laughs> at the minute so and then obviously walk the dog too so like being out in the countryside i've missed it a lot i just haven't realized how much until i've moved moved back out here nice claire where can people find out more about you what you do where's the best resources to kind of look you up or or, or engage with you for instance Okay, so I have a website, getbacktosports.com. Um, so if any of the things that you've heard today, I guess, sound interesting, there's a, a blog there. There's probably about nearly 60 blog posts on things that are like strength and conditioning. So don't, 
worried that strength and conditioning sounds really athlete focused. A lot of it's rehab focused, a lot of it's population focused. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, that's at Claire underscore Minshaw. So please reach out to me there uh, if you wish to. And I'm on Instagram at Get Back to Sports as well. So that's, and on Facebook as well, obviously. Uh, but yeah, get in touch. More than happy to engage and uh, chat with you all. Claire, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been absolutely amazing. So thanks very much. Absolutely. My pleasure to be on this podcast. And uh, thanks so much for inviting me, guys. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining us it was really interesting especially as i've been following your stuff for ages uh, and it was great to just actually hear you speak and have a chat to you so uh, thank you hopefully you managed to translate this this yorkshire accent as we got into there don't worry we've uh, we've been managing to translate my sort of south london slang so you'll, you'll be fine you come across perfect <laughs> uh, queen's english compared to that definitely <laughs> <laughs> not but cool so that was possibly our longest episode yet but um that's partly our fault because we were enjoying it so much um it's definitely our our area our bag things we enjoy talking about so no surprises that we managed to rabbit on for quite so long but um absolutely privileged to have claire minchel talking today um hopefully there's plenty of knowledge gems for you all really it was great like um it was it was such, like you said it was such a privilege to have her on we've both been sort of inspired by her work for some time now and we know that she's like recently moved she's got a gym she's building she's got all these projects going on so it was great for her to just give us a bit of time really which was incredible the bits i i think are so relevant are that little bit the pretty much the bulk we covered at the end like just get give it a go have a try just get involved enjoy it and that's just applicable for everyone really yeah and then the, the if you are if you do start if you do get going with it you're going to benefit straight away but at one point that'll plateau so then the next step is start pushing yourself a bit more and it's not just about doing loads and loads of reps but it's about really pushing with intensity if your goal is to get stronger then you've got to go into those strength reps which is you know three to five reps of heavy weight and make yourself uncomfortable make make your body feel feel fatigued and then progressively overload which make make it heavier gradually over time build up um, you know with adequate rest periods you know sometimes 60 90 second rest periods so basically just keep gradually pushing and pushing and pushing and that's probably the bit that a lot of people miss in rehab but even in sort of general general pop in the gym as well in the gyms as well isn't it definitely the the, the bit at the start where she sort of broke down just the basic principles, like we said, specificity and overload are so, are so, are so key and so often missed, unfortunately. Um, but it's the bits that would, you know, like you say, you and I go into the gym, we can apply that to whether we want to get bigger, get stronger, get faster. You just have to manipulate a very few, you know, just a few variables and do that regularly over time in a bit of a structure there's, there's probably not going to take very it's not like you've got to sit there and write a really intense plan it probably don't, won't take that much to just get more out of your training yeah i mean i i'm definitely all about efficiency in the gym i'm probably only spending half an hour in the gym once or twice a week at the moment but i know i'm still doing really good sessions because i know how to train i know i know how to get those intense reps in so it doesn't have to take up your whole life i mean it could do you probably get some gains quicker but it also doesn't have to I think that 
really interesting conversation around the changing nature of people that are engaging in exercises uh, strength exercise in particular is, a, is encouraging i think that there is a change i know my my wife claire she she used to strength train for quite a while and at that time what was it five six years ago she was in the minority and it was just all guys in the in the weights room and now there is definitely a shift more more females do 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 seem to want to do it. older people are strength training a bit more as well so there is a a pleasing change in the in the demographic of people that are engaging in it definitely and like like i sort of said in the podcast i just i think things like instagram and social media and podcasts and all these things now where everybody can access this information in in so many different ways has just helped that topic be discussed more and as such more people are more likely to get involved and and that's great because we both love it so of course yeah Uh, one of the questions i didn't ask but i was mulling over and thinking about was does everyone need a coach or a personal trainer um and, and i think really the answer is it depends you know there's probably some basics that most people should be able to take from this podcast but if your goals are quite specific or if you feel like you're not making any progress that's probably where getting someone in and planning things with a bit more structure that's probably where i would see it do you you have any other thoughts on that about whether you need someone to help you or not no i so having now worked in a in an area with a with a strength conditioning coach i can i think i appreciate the fact that it's not just if you don't know what you're doing that you might need a PT or, or a coach. Sometimes it's if you get a little bit stuck or you want to mm. uh, obtain something that might be slightly new that you might not have the um, knowledge base to to do at that point. Or if you just need some guidance along a new track, for instance, that you can engage with coaching on different levels for different reasons, for different length of times. Uh, so, yeah, I think if you're at a point where you feel you've kind of leveled off or you want to make a change then sometimes a coach can be effective but there is lots of good advice hopefully some in this podcast which you can apply early to see if that can begin to make the changes and then if you still a little bit stuck perhaps that's that's when you can start with a coach yeah makes sense well i think that's a good place to end for for tonight uh i'm going to give the email a go so i've been working at this come on in Peter. So, Let's so, yeah. hear it. <laughs> so so if you've got any questions uh comments or or you want to follow up on any of the information that we've provided today then uh yeah come give it give us an email so thehealthspace.co at gmail.com that was nearly right, that, that was right, right. yeah yeah that yeah. was that, that's the first time we've nailed it first time i believe excellent so yeah look forward to hearing I think you emails. made the email didn't you I did. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating. We'll keep bringing you the gold. Follow us on Instagram at the.healthspace and for any questions or ideas for future content, email us at thehealthspace.co at gmail.com.